step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live around the world, this is The Ryan Lindsay Show. Phone lines are open to speak with Ryan or any of his guests at 319-527-6702 or email Ryan. The email address is ryan at ryanlindsayshow.com. Now, here's Ryan Lindsay. And greetings from the beautiful Northwoods of Wisconsin. We have got a great show for you tonight. Dr. Greg Little is my guest. We're going to be talking about the life of Edgar Casey. We'll also talk about Atlantis and how Edgar Casey predicted when and where Atlantis may be found. We'll be taking your calls throughout the show, 319-527-6702. So uh, good evening, wherever or whenever you may be listening, whether you're listening live or listening to a downloaded show. Uh, we're very glad that uh, that you're with us. And remember, you can visit RyanLindsayShow.com for more information about the show. If you'd like to uh, suggest guests, then email me, Ryan at RyanLindsayShow.com. And we're going to move on here to, uh, real quick, a uh, couple of news stories that you may not have heard otherwise today. Firefighters in Britain said crews from three towns spent three hours extinguishing the flames from a blaze that started with a 22-ton pile of chicken manure. The Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service said crews responded to the property when the foul-smelling foul droppings erupted into flames. Uh, Experts said the chemicals in poultry manure can cause spontaneous combustion when a pile of it becomes too large to allow heat to escape. Authorities in a Michigan county are investigating reports of a crocodile or other similar animal lurking in a local river, and the creature may have been caught on camera. Macomb County Animal Control said three separate reports were made of a reptile swimming in the Clinton River, with the first call coming a few weeks ago and the most recent reported uh, last Monday. The caller said the animal appears to be a crocodile or a caiman, a smaller cousin of the larger reptile. The mystery animal was reported to be about three feet long. Now, crews from a uh, a TV station in the area took a camera to the river and captured unclear footage of an animal moving in the water, scaring off nearby birds. An enhanced frame from the video was found to show what appears to be the head of a crocodile on the surface of the water. And finally, a quick story here that kind of makes you feel good. A Tennessee boy who addressed a message in a bottle to the tooth fairy after losing his tooth at a South Carolina beach received a reply in the mail from a generous stranger, his mother said. Uh, Ashley Hamrick of Knox County said her young son Lucas was visiting Myrtle Beach with his family in June when he lost his tooth while boogie boarding and it disappeared into the surf. Uh, Hamrick helped Lucas write a letter to the Tooth Fairy explaining the incident, and the note was put inside a bottle and then thrown into the ocean. The mother said she was surprised when a package showed up at the family's home three months later bearing a Dayton, Ohio postmark. The package contained a letter addressed to Lucas signed by the Tooth Fairy. I hope you, uh, the letter said, I hope you had a fun vacation at the beach. I'm so sorry that you lost your tooth in the surf. I got your message in the bottle, so I wasn't worried about not finding it right away. Good news, mermaids found your tooth and gave it to me. The mermaid wanted you to have this shark tooth to remember your vacation. Remember to brush your teeth two times every day to keep them pretty for me. Flossing is good, too. Stay safe. The Tooth Fairy. No, uh, no indication on the letter who may have actually written the uh, the letter, but I, my bet is on the tooth fairy, of course. If that's who said, 
If that's who she said she was, of course, it was the Tooth Fairy. Uh, we're going to move on here. As I said, Greg Little is uh, is my guest. We'll get to him in just a moment. Uh, we're going to introduce my co-host here, Tamara Gleason, Mystic Tamara Gleason. And Tamara, this is going to be a fun one tonight. Oh, you know I love Edgar Casey, my favorite mystic, right, besides my sister. But, uh, yeah, Atlantis, <laughs> Greg Little, Dr. Greg Little and Laura what what extensive, wonderful research. I'm all about this show tonight. Very excited to be a little fly on the wall and listen to him share his stories. Well, ask any questions you have, but, you know, jump right in whenever you want to. Okay. Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm also very, <laughs> very interested in the mound builders, the mound builders sure. work he has too. So you'll have to have him on the show again for that. So we'll, we'll, looking forward we'll to do the that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Greg Little has a master's degree in psychology and a doctorate in counseling and educational psychology from Memphis State University. Since the early 1980s, Greg has actively researched such topics as UFOs, psychic abilities, archaeology, and paranormal phenomena. He is the author or co-author of over 70 books and is the author or co-author of seven books about Edgar Cayce's abilities. He and his wife spent over 25 weeks in the Bahamas conducting underwater research looking for evidence of the ruins of Atlantis, which Cayce said could be found there. Edgar Cayce was America's most famous psychic. He's been called the sleeping prophet, the father of uh, the holistic health movement, among many other uh, wonderful titles. And glad again to welcome Dr. Greg Little to the show. Greg, how are you? I am fine. Uh, thank you for having me on. Hello, Tamara. Hello. Pleasure hey, to meet you, Greg. I'm good. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Hopefully I'm coming through all right. And Absolutely. I'm ready well, to... clear. All right. We can go wherever you want to go with this. Uh, I do <laughs> love talking about Indian mounds, but I guess we'll talk about Casey. Well, I think we, we've yeah. got enough time to get to both of them, certainly. All right. Certainly. Let's start with uh, with Edgar that. Casey. For anybody who doesn't know, who was Edgar Casey? Well, that would take more than an hour. Uh, <laughs> Casey Casey has been known as the sleeping prophet. He's basically uh, clearly recognized as America's um, greatest psychic. Um, he is considered a psychic because he gave psychic readings. He went into a semi hypnotic really a self-induced semi-hypnotic trance. Uh, and then during these trances, he was questioned. Generally, the questions were made in advance. They came from letters from various people. Uh, sometimes they were about uh, specific things in history. Sometimes they were about mysteries. Uh, the large bulk of the questions that he got, though, were about health. And that's how he started out, giving people what are called health readings. Uh, he was born in 1877 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and that's not too long after the Civil War. And at that time, medicine really was not very advanced. Uh, and so a lot of Casey's remedies that he gave were would be considered today very holistic. Uh, people would write Casey, uh, and doctors would come to Casey with cases of various ailments that the, the physicians could not do anything about. In fact, the physicians were often baffled by, by the cases. Uh, and they studied, a lot of physicians studied Casey. A lot of them came and visited him, witnessed him, uh, give readings. Uh, he was tested during the readings. And uh, one of the reasons that Casey got away from all the physicians is because what they did to him during some of these uh, psychic readings he gave. For example, uh, initially some physicians, this was back like in 1909, 1910, and 11, some physicians actually would stick a pin uh, through his cheek from one side to the other to cool. see if he was faking. Another physician actually took a knife and stuck it under one of Casey's fingernails and pulled the <laughs> fingernail off during one of his readings. Uh, Casey never moved when that happened, but when he woke up, he was in a great deal of pain, and he was quite furious, and he just got tired of all the physicians poking into him. Uh, but the physicians also made him famous. Uh, in, in 1910, a physician by the name of Ketchum gave a talk on Casey. He presented a paper at a conference at Caltech uh, in California, 
and another physician uh, heard it, got permission to give the same talk at a conference uh, that was held in New York at Harvard. Um, and over 500 physicians attended that, and the New York Times was there. The New York Times sent reporters to various places where Casey had given readings. They found a lot of his patients. I'll call them patients, although he wasn't a medical doctor. Uh, but they, they talked to the patients, they talked to the doctors, and they started issuing articles about him. So they put out big articles. Then the Chicago Times put out articles. Loads of other newspapers did. And so Casey became famous very, very quickly. Uh, he was initially called illiterate, which is not really true. He did drop out of school around the sixth or seventh grade. Uh, but he was a, a voracious reader. He worked in some bookstores. Uh, and that's kind of a thumbnail. But he really began it uh, because of his own experiences with little people and seeing dead people, um, mainly his grandfather, uh, who he witnessed dying when he was three years old. And at that age, he began then seeing his dead grandfather and conversing with him. Uh, and that really started a long series of events where he would he would have these little beings around him. Uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky also is the place where the Kelly Hopkinsville UFO case occurred in 1955, uh, which is a very, very famous case, uh, strange case. And so very, it's kind of a strange area, too. It's had a lot of uh, weird things occurring over time. Mm -hmm. uh, at age 12, he discovered that he had the ability. He already knew this, but he, he kind of let people know because uh, he was having trouble spelling in school and he couldn't spell the word cabin. Now, this is fully documented. It's been written up in loads and loads of books, uh, and this gets stranger and stranger. But he couldn't spell the word cabin. The school teacher sent a note back to his parents. His father was furious at him, and um, it, his father told him to look through the spelling book, and he couldn't spell any of it. And he begged his father to let him go to sleep, let him take a nap for just a few minutes, and it wound up being about five minutes that he did. And supposedly, the way the story goes, he slept on the spelling book, and then he ran out to his father and said, open the book to any page. And Casey knew every word on every page. In fact, he could actually uh, tell his father to go down so many words, and then he knew what the word was. So that he had what is called an eidetic memory, also known as a photographic memory. Uh, and when he was asked about this case, he said he could actually see the pages, which is very common with that. Now, eidetic memory is not totally accepted in psychology. There are cases of it, and it's generally with children. But his memory was so good, he became a local celebrity. Now, this was long before all the psychic stuff occurred. And then at the age of 13, he had this experience where he was reading the Bible, he, he had vowed, he was a devout Christian, he had vowed to read the Bible one time, cover to cover, for every year that he lived. And so he, when he was age 13, he had caught up and he was reading it for the 13th time, and he read the story of Manoah. Now, the true story is that uh, he then went home, he was in the woods, he had a lean-to that he had built in the woods, and he went home late at night, and then laid in bed, and then his, his bedroom filled with light. Uh, he eventually then saw an angel appear in front of him in this bright lit room, and the angel asked Casey what he'd most like to do, and he said, I guess, to help people, and the, and the angel said in turn uh, that that's what would happen. You would help people. Uh, Edgar didn't tell anybody but his mother about it, but it took him three years to get the courage up to tell his mother. Uh, so that's kind of the beginning of the story. Uh, there's a really clever story. I just really like this because it's so well documented. Uh, when Casey was 14, uh, a guy by the name of Jim McKenzie, who had been a Kentucky congressman, he had just been appointed the ambassador to Peru by President Grover Cleveland. And he was visiting Hopkinsville before he left Mackenzie and Edgar's father knew each other, and Edgar's father was bragging on how good Edgar could memorize things, that he could memorize anything. And Mackenzie said, well, I doubt that, and he made Edgar's father a $10 bet. And Mackenzie had with him a 110-page speech that he had just delivered to Congress before he left for Peru. 
and he bet Edgar's father that Edgar could not memorize that speech by just hearing it and then reciting it in front of a a classroom full of people. So here's what happened. Edgar's father read the speech to him two nights in a row, right before Edgar went to sleep. Mackenzie was there during this. Edgar, uh, Edgar never even touched the pages. And then the following day, early in the morning, in front of newspaper reporters from the Kentucky New Era, the school teachers, Mackenzie himself and a, and a, a slew of other people, Edgar recited the speech word for word, all 110 pages, without making a mistake. So he had this incredible memorization ability. Uh, that's not really popularly known. Most people think of him as somewhat illiterate, uh, but the man was truly amazing. And it wasn't until he was age 21 when he really started his psychic readings, and that was kind of a, a synchronicity also. He had lost his voice. Edgar was then working as an apprentice photographer, and he had lost his voice, still living in Hopkinsville, And at that time, it was in 1900, at that time, a traveling hypnotist, which was then known as mesmerism, came to Hopkinsville, and he was in an auditorium, and he was looking for volunteers in the audience. And the audience rose and said, take Edgar Casey, take him, because Edgar was such a local celebrity. Uh, And Edgar went up. All he could do was whisper, just barely whisper words. And so the hypnotist hypnotized Edgar very easily, and Edgar was able to speak perfectly under hypnosis. But as soon as the hypnosis, uh, as soon as he came out of the hypnosis, his voice went back to a whisper. Now, a couple other hypnotists tried the same thing with Edgar. They got the same results. And, and finally, there was a local osteopath who lived in Hopkinsville who got Edgar in, did hypnosis on him, and somewhere in this hypnotic session, he decided to ask Edgar himself what was wrong. And Edgar did a self-diagnosis on himself, kind of looked over the body, scans the body, and then said the problem was in the throat. Suggest to the suggest to the person, which means Edgar's whoever was speaking through Edgar, was saying suggest to the entity Edgar Casey to increase the blood flow to the neck area. And so the osteopath did that. Edgar's Edgar's throat got bright red. Uh, He coughed a bit. They then took him out of the hypnotic trance. He spit some blood up and was able to speak. So that was his first psychic reading. The second one was on the osteopath himself. The osteopath figured, well, if Edgar can diagnose himself, maybe he can diagnose me. I mean, it sounds (laughs) preposterous. But that's what happened, and and he did. He diagnosed the problem the osteopath had. The osteopath didn't even tell him what the problem was, and he he, uh, suggested a remedy, and the osteopath used it, and it worked. And so that's how the health readings started, and he did nothing but health readings until basically 1923 or so. And up to that time, he did about 8,000 readings up to 1923, and then in 1923, Atlantis, reincarnation, past lives, ancient history, and all sorts of other things started popping out in the readings because they started asking about it. Even even, even aliens, alien life, uh, life on other planets, all those things were included in these readings. So that's kind We've of a thumbnail. Yeah, absolutely. We got to get on into all of that. And <laughs> now, who was who did Edgar Casey think was speaking through him? Was it his subconscious? His higher self, well, or was it someone else? Most people assume it's a subconscious. Uh, Edgar said that it was a universal source. Uh, he said that everything that a person does and thinks is recorded. Every event, everything that happens is recorded. The example that's sometimes given, it's like it's vibrational. I see it as electromagnetic. And it's like, if you remember vinyl records, they have grooves and grooves are vibrational in effect. And so it's like that. Everything we do is in a groove, and all that information is stored somewhere. Uh, It's also called the Akashic Record, A-K-A-S-H-I-C, Akashic Record, Uh, and Edgar was accessing that. But when when Edgar came out of these psychic trances, he could not remember a single word of it. 
Now, that does happen under really deep hypnosis, and that is one reason why they wrote down everything that was said, all the questions and, and all the answers and replies that he gave during the psychic readings, in case he's different that way. We have every single word that he said under his psychic trances, basically from 1922 on, and we have uh, the records from about three or 400 of those before 1923. So there's 14,300 and some odd uh, of his psychic readings that are printed out. Uh, they are on, in 50... <laughs> there's 120,000 pages of them. They are oh, kept in geez. the library of the ARE in Virginia Beach. They're also on a database which members can access online. Uh, so you can search through that. Uh, there have been loads of medical researchers that have gone through all of his readings and found like everything on arthritis that he said, everything on cirrhosis, uh, uh, you name it, you name the disorder, and somewhere in the Casey readings it's mentioned, and then they've put together uh, whatever he recommended for those various problems. Now, it seems like when I had read about uh, some of the health benefits, there was a lot of mentions of castor oil. Yeah, castor oil popped up again and again, and it is still available. It's a very interesting substance. Uh, I use it. My wife my wife actually got me to use it because I was always skeptical in this. I started out as a real skeptic. I was interested in Casey's health readings initially. I had no interest in Atlantis at all. And when I actually got into this, I had very little interest in Native American stuff and ancient history and archaeology in general. Uh, and it was by reading the, the medical research done on Casey's readings that got me to dig in deeper on everything else. Castor oil uh, was used for a whole bunch of things, but it is very effective with almost all, con all ailments uh, of organs and anything that you have that's skin-related. Uh, it's good for, for uh, osteoporosis and, I'm sorry, osteoarthritis. Uh, I've had many people use castor oil for like nodules. They are calcium nodules that occur in the knuckles of the fingers, um, virtually all of them. Some people get these giant nodules and it makes it causes a lot of pain, makes their hands stiff. Uh, and what I've recommended to them is to sit at home, get a get a couple of gloves, uh, put castor oil into the gloves, and wear the gloves for a few hours. Of course, castor oil can be messy, so make sure you're not going to spill any of it. Put it in a pan or something to sit there a few hours. And what has happened with everyone that's done this that had the calcium nodules in their knuckles, uh, it softened the knuckles, and then it softened the, these hard nodules, and then eventually it dissipated them. They just simply disappeared. So in that way, it's kind of miraculous, but it's good for almost anything externally. I'm not saying to use castor oil internally. Uh, you can. They used to give castor oil for all kinds of other illnesses. Sure. Uh, but it, it's not very pleasant to uh, drink or eat. Right. Talking with uh, Dr. Greg Little, uh, we're talking about Edgar Casey, and we'll uh, get to Atlantis, probably some ancient mysteries of history and so forth. If uh, you'd like to call in, folks, then please do. If you have questions about Edgar Casey, 319-527-6702 is the uh, is the number. Um, I was just thinking, Greg, I had a uh, I bought one of Edgar Casey's cold coins several years ago and uh, kept it on a on a keychain in in my pocket all the time. And I don't think I ever got a cold while I had it until I lost it. Uh, can well, you explain what the, what the cold coin does? No. <laughs> no, <I can't. laughs> nope, can't do it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm not was... a I'm not a uh, a medical doctor. I'm a psychologist, so I try to stay away from that. I can uh, uh, all those remedies. Uh, Casey kind of gave us five major health principles, and all these remedies. Uh, he talked about a well balanced diet, eat lots of fruits, fruits and vegetables, but he said they should be local grown. And it's because of nutrients that come out locally, because different areas have different nutrients in the soil. Uh, he talked about being cleansed inside, outside, and mentally. Uh, it's a physical, mental, and spiritual balance. He talked about regular exercise, uh, helping others, keep your attitudes and emotions on helping others, and use relaxation, meditation, and, and recreation to keep your life in balance. I mean, that's why it's holistic. It's a very balanced sort of thing. 
He talked about organs that get out of balance. and uh, But when you get to a remedy like that, there's another one called the Radiac uh, a device. You can still get those. Um, I don't really have much to say about it. My wife would say a lot about the Radiac, and I know many other people who had Alzheimer's uh, use the Radiac. Uh, and but it would not be considered mainstream at all. Of course, mm-hmm. nothing holistic is considered mainstream either. Uh, but right. there are many, many physicians that are members of the KC organization. It's called the ARE. Loads and loads of nurses, uh, lots of osteopaths, a lot of psychologists, and even several Ph.D. archaeologists that I've interacted with. Uh, and most archaeologists uh, really detest Edgar Casey. Um, that's their problem, but uh, Casey organization is filled with a lot of professionals, uh, and they really believe in in what he said. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it has a lot of there's a lot of logic in it. When uh, and uh, as we've studied some of his readings, it uh, seems to come true. He he explained the the benefits of uh, of a chiropractor long before yeah. he had a chiropractor on every single corner. But uh, oh yeah. He was an early well, proponent he, he of did, that. He did mention spi- spinal alignments, spinal misalignments. Very, we're talking about really small, small misalignments that that people never really notice. Uh, he talked about how they caused all sorts of issues with us, uh, and I I had that. It it took me a long time to recognize that, uh, and actually had something done that I used to have really bad, bad, bad back issues. Uh, that would come and go, and it was because of a very minuscule alignment uh, that I had fixed through surgery, not not internal. Well, I guess it is internal surgery. There, I had a really small cyst that was removed that apparently was putting just enough pressure uh, on the spinal column that would cause me issues at times. Uh, and so that that's a personal thing, but he mentioned that many many times in his readings about spinal misalignments. Uh, he talked about massages were good for us. Uh, the ARE does run two very large massage schools that are generally uh, always filled with students. They're very successful. Uh, they also have a university there, Atlantic University, that, that gives master's degrees in psychology and a couple other areas. So, yeah, he's, Casey was a remarkable person. Uh, he died in 1945. Uh, he died because he was giving too many readings. At least that is what the readings told him. Uh, he became so well-known that he got bags and bags of mail every day. If you can visualize in the old days a postman who was walking around that has one of those <laughs> giant leather bags, they would bring two to three bags of those every day to Edgar. And the readings had told Edgar to do no more than one or two readings a day. And at the end, Edgar was giving 10 or 12 readings a day. It told him over and over he had to slow down, uh, that it was draining him of energy. Uh, And that is literally what the readings said when he died, that that was going to kill him, and it did. Hmm. Did he charge? He just couldn't turn down people. I mean, when he even when the readings told him this will kill you, he just couldn't stop because he said these people need help. Uh, mm-hmm. But he had so many, he couldn't possibly give hundreds of readings every day. That can't be done. There's not enough time. Uh, so he had a process where it was the only thing they could do. He would reach his hand in the bag until he felt an envelope that he felt that he needed to pull out. Uh, and so he'd pull that out, and they'd do the reading for that one. And he'd do that um, seven, eight, ten, twelve times a day. Uh, some of the people also were very, very famous. I mean, some of them are, uh, it's remarkable, the people that Casey gave readings for. He actually gave readings in front of Harry Houdini. Uh, he gave the readings for William McDougall, who was in the chair. He was the chair of the Harvard Psychology Department and a very famous uh, psychic investigator called Carrington, Hereworth, Hereward Carrington. Uh, Houdini, of course, exposed a lot of fake psychics, uh, but Houdini never said anything bad about Casey at all. And Houdini, who was friends with Arthur Conan Doyle, talked to Doyle, uh, and Arthur Conan Doyle liter- wrote literally that Edgar Casey was in a class of all his own. Uh, Casey gave readings for Woodrow Wilson while he was president. 
uh, it's that was those records are still uh, sealed, uh, but the ARE has access to some of that information. Uh, he gave readings and exchanged correspondence with both Thomas Edison and Tesla. Casey helped Edison uh, in Edison's attempt to try and develop a device to talk to the dead. Uh, he, he gave readings for Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, George Meany, Gloria Swanson, Ernest Hemingway's mother, uh, the guy who started NBC, David Sarnoff, he gave him readings. The guy that invented FM radio, Mitchell Hastings, actually gave Casey credit for the invention of FM radio. Uh, George Putnam, who was uh, Amelia Earhart's husband, had Casey do two readings about her. Uh, trying to find her. Uh, and in one of those readings, in the first reading, he said that she was alive, but she was hurt. The plane had crashed in shallow water in a very remote island in that area. Uh, about a week later, they gave another reading in case he said it was too late that she was dead at that time. Uh, there's just loads and loads of other people. Uh, some of the people that Casey gave readings to, the ARE in recent years have actually gotten a hold of contacted them and they have come to the ARE and spoken about it uh, it's some of it's just phenomenal to, to hear these people talk about how much help they got from it mm-hmm. did he charge readings back then uh, Edgar did not have a flat charge uh, he he would accept up to twenty dollars if somebody wanted to give him that generally he got nothing for the readings he made his money as a photographer uh, he he won some awards as a photographer uh, one of them was the, the biggest award at the time for photographers was the Ladies' Home Journal, uh, and he won a national award from them, uh, top uh, number one photographer in, for them. Uh, but uh, he made most of his living as a photographer. But, yes, he did accept some money for the readings, but he had no set fee. Okay. You talked a little bit earlier about the Akashic Records. Um, yes. Edgar Casey also talked about the Hall of Records. Weren't there various yes. halls of records in in the world? Yes. Okay. So in uh, let's not get them confused. The Akashic Record yep. is that I see it as part of the electromagnetic energy spectrum, but it's kind of the repository of all information of everything that's ever occurred, probably from the Big Bang to now. So during his readings in the 20s and the 30s. Atlantis popped up. It's a long involved story. In 1923, up to 23, Casey had not given any readings on anything other than health. And then there was this fellow by the name of Arthur Lammers uh, who brought Casey to Dayton, Ohio. The whole family went there. And he did several readings with Edgar. um, And in those readings, he asked Edgar about theosophy and he asked him about the ancient world. And that is when reincarnation popped up. Shortly thereafter, the first reading on Atlantis came up. That was in 1923. There was a group at that time who were asking Casey about the island of Bimini. Bimini is a very, it's a seven-mile-long island. It's really two small islands that are sort of connected. Uh, it's 55 miles to the east of Fort Lauderdale in Miami. It's the closest Bahama island to the United States. Uh, They were wanting to develop oil that they thought might be at Bimini. So they actually got uh, Casey to go to the Halcyon Hotel in Miami where they conducted the readings. And Casey in that reading told them that there was no oil whatsoever under uh, Bimini. And that, that has actually turned out to be true over the years. We know that is true. Uh, But he said in the reading, but this is the highest portion of what was once a great continent. They simply ignored that. In that that same reading, Casey mentioned that there was gold that had been buried on Bimini and also a gold vein there. So they went to Bimini to try and find the gold. They couldn't find it, and they got back, uh, and they did another reading with it. Casey mentioned in that that it was uh, part of Poseidia. Poseidia is another word for Atlantis. It stands for Poseidon, who is the uh, the individual or the Greek god who supposedly started Atlantis. Uh, and Casey said that there was a temple 
uh, of Atlantis that had been placed somewhere near Bimini and that it was now underwater, located under the slime of ages. And then in subsequent readings that were done, he said that this temple was a Hall of Records temple. Now, the Hall of Records, most people think of it as being in Egypt, under the right paw of the Sphinx, in a chamber that's in the rock down there. Uh, So Casey's reading said that the Atlanteans in approximately 10,500 B.C., or 12,500 years ago, received information probably from outer space telling them that Atlantis was going to be destroyed and that they needed to make a plan to preserve their records, their history and their knowledge, and that they should put them in three different places, different places that were widely spread out so that that they wouldn't all be destroyed in the coming cataclysm. One of those was in Egypt, which, as I've already said, is under the right paw of the Sphinx. The second one was this Temple of the Poseidians near Bimini. And the third one was in the Yucatan, which has been identified as a place known as Piedras Negras in Guatemala. It's on the Asuma Cinta River, which borders Mexico. Uh, it is in the uh, the extremes. Uh, it's not the center of the Yucatan Peninsula, but it's the in the extreme northern part of it. And we have been there. Uh, that was one of our expeditions that we did also. It's a very, very remote site. Uh, that was discovered because when he gave that reading, I believe it was 1933, he said that the University of Pennsylvania was there at that moment, and they were sending certain remnants of it to their museum. So my wife and I have been to that museum at Penn. My wife actually obtained all of the uh, field notes, archaeological field notes from the 1930s that Uh, the University of Pennsylvania did while they were there. She saw a lot of the original artifacts, and she and John Van Auken did a book on that, and that one is called The Lost Hall of Records because very few people know that Casey said there were three Hall of Records. The one in Egypt, of course, uh, has never been found. Great deal of controversy about it. It is well known that under the right paw of the Sphinx, somewhere 20 to 30 feet down in rock, there is some sort of a chamber. Uh, it has never been accessed as far as we know. There are rumors that uh, Zahi Hawass had had a tunnel built from his house to it. It's, that's a long story. Zahi once told us <laughs> that uh, people were breaking into his house in Cairo because they believed that he had a tunnel running from his bathroom uh, into the Hall of Records chamber under the Sphinx. Uh, long story there. The third one in Bimini has been... Uh, That has been the uh, focal point of research for a long, long time. And Casey said very specifically that a portion of Atlantis would rise again in the Bahamas near Bimini uh, in 1968 or 69, not so far away, he said. Actually, he said 19, yeah, he said 68 or 69. So in 1968, several formations were found there one of which was called the Bimini Road. Uh, It became very controversial. Uh, My wife and I decided to do research there starting in 2000, uh, the year 2000, actually 2001 is when we began, because of our contacts with a British researcher known as Andrew Collins. And we had no intention of really following up on everything there and doing 25 weeks and buying our own boat to do this and having to get a tons of specialized equipment. Our boat at one time had three different side scan sonars on it, uh, which those are pretty um, high-tech devices. We had loads and loads of underwater cameras, remote cameras, drop cameras, and so on. Uh, and so we actually scoured huge areas of the Bahamas. But we started out looking for a formation that was initially found and, and popularized, popular, popularized by Charles Berlitz and J. Manson Valentine and a fellow by the name of Dmitry Rebikov, a Ph.D. Ge- underwater geologist, uh, that they had found in '68. So we started um, and we debunked one. Uh, we found this site, this giant 
circle uh, that no one had ever found. It was first seen in 68. Lots of people had tried to find it. It was photographed from the air in 68 uh, by two pilots, uh, and people had spent enormous amounts of money trying to find it around the Andros Island, which is the largest Bahama Island, but also the least visited. Uh, we found the site immediately by actually running down the pilot, uh, the only remaining pilot himself. He told us in an interview that no one had ever asked him where it was. We were the first people ever since <laughs> 1968. Wow, that was Justin. It was almost as if you were meant so, to be there. Yeah, it was interesting. He actually, and I said, "Do you know? Can you tell me where it is?" And he said, "Sure." And he actually pulled out a pilot's map and pointed to the exact spot. Uh, it is in Cuban airspace. That was part of the issue. Uh, now, Cuba was shooting down planes until roughly 1974 or so. I think 77 is the last time they did it. Uh, and it is in the Cuban ADZ air defense zone. Uh, and I eventually found a uh, two-wing or a high-wing two-engine, it's called a um, oh, Norman Islander plane. It, it can fly very, very slow, very, very low, uh, and it's exceedingly safe. Uh, and I got a charter. The pilot was really interested in it. He didn't care if we were going go to go into Cuban airspace or not because he said, we're just going to fly below the radar. Uh, and we flew up and down the coast of Andros for hours. We found that particular circle and many others. Uh, and we took uh, not just photographs and film, but we took the GPS coordinates of it. Because even if you have the, even if you know where it is, you can't always find these underwater spots when you go out on a boat. You just can't see them. So sure. we then, it was very difficult, but we managed to get to it. Uh, and we found this giant circle, which supposedly had three rings of standing stones around it. So imagine something like Stonehenge, but only 20 times bigger. This thing was supposed to be gigantic, 20 times the size of Stonehenge, and have three sets of stones around it that are standing up. We got to this site, and lo and behold... Uh, it, it's in two and a half feet of water, five miles offshore. Uh, oh. And what looked like standing stones from the air and photographs were gigantic sponges. Oh, no. <laughs> that is absolutely true. It was remarkable, and it was a sponge diver that we got to take us. And he said, man, he said, nobody has ever been over here. He said, there is a fortune in sponge here. <laughs> uh, and we really thought that we we found another site called Ribikoff's E. It was a, it's a it looks like the small letter E. It's underwater, never been found by anybody. It's only been seen. We got to it and we found that it was a coral head that had turtle grass growing on it, and that was going to be the sum total of everything we did in the Bahamas. We were ready to go back. I had no intention of doing this for years and years. Uh, but then the night before we were going to leave, there was a knock at the door. There was a violent thunderstorm. A guy came in. Uh, he had been a former uh, dive operator on Andros, which Andros really doesn't have tourists, so he'd gone out of business, and he had health issues. And he told us he thought we were treasure hunters because that's what everybody does in the Bahamas that is going out on boats looking for stuff. They're looking for treasure. Uh, and we weren't treasure hunters, and we had all these materials to show him. We showed him some of our film, and he said, okay. And he said, I know of a site I want you to see. And I said, we're leaving in the morning. He said, well, you can go see it in the morning. Uh, it was right off the coast of north northern Andros. Uh, we called it the Andros Platform. He said it looked like the Bimini Road. And what we found was a gigantic, uh, roughly 1,000, 1,200-foot-long formation of massive stones on the bottom, stacked up in three separate rows, very clearly old, very clearly carved and placed. It's called We call it the Andros Platform. Uh, we got geologists involved. Uh, that got a great deal of attention. Some press re releases went out. And that began, began the documentary makers uh, coming after us and wanting to go. So we subsequently did 14 documentaries with History Channel and Discovery, Discovery Kids, the Learning Channel, loads of others. Um, but we started then, just, we just did our own stuff. The documentaries, 
Uh, it's nice having attention, but you really can't do true research with them. They have an agenda, and they just want you to recreate <laughs> yes, what do. you found. Act like you're finding it. That's kind of what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, so we started doing it on our own, uh, and so we spent another 24 weeks using our own boat, which we got specially made for this, um, in, investigating, searching. One of the things we did find that's really interesting are 31 underwater crashed planes. And three of those turned out to be planes that are on the official Bermuda Triangle list of planes that were never seen or heard from again. Uh, not not Flight 19. That's what we were hoping to find, but, of course, we didn't find that. But we did find uh, a an airliner that crashed right after Flight 19 that had 31 people on it. Of course, the people weren't in it. Uh, yeah. We found that. We actually took the National Geographic to that, and that's the best of all the documentary makers. They were the they were the best of all the different crews we worked with. Uh, they sent some of the parts to the Royal Air Force in England to uh, identify, uh, and that's how it was identified as, as a Bermuda Triangle plane. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. The Probably the most important thing we found, well, I won't say that. We found lots of stuff, uh, lots of <laughs> underwater stone formations, building structures, uh, a lot of very weird things that shouldn't be there. There were uh, steps that were carved into stone underwater. Uh, of course, everything is, is uh, covered in coral. A large research project that was done by Bill Donato and us together uh, Bill actually did the initial side scan sonar with support from the ARE, uh, and he found this mile-and-a-half-long formation uh, about seven miles off of Bimini toward the United States in water that's exactly 110 to 115 feet deep. Uh, and during this mile-and-a-half-long formation, there are row after row of what look like buildings on the bottom. And when I say they look like buildings, they're all square or they're rectangular, very easy to see, very identifiable, very straight sides. Some of them look like they have building blocks. They're all covered by coral. Uh, and in between them, so on side scan sonar, even when you, when, you, when you go over them, sometimes you can see the bottom there, even though it's 110 feet deep because the water is so clear. Uh, you, what you see is this square rectangular form, then pure white sand, then you hit another of these square and rectangular forms, then more pure white sand, and another and another. There's roughly 50 of these there, and you can actually see on the bottom there the shoreline from 10,000 and 11,000 B.C. That, so it was just above the shoreline at 10,000 B.C. So we believe that's probably the remains of a port, of a loading dock, and supply rooms that would supply buildings that would be put right by the shoreline to move cargo on and off. Uh, that has been looked at. Uh, we went there with the History Channel, uh, and they showed some film of it. Their experts that went along with us that have been all over the world said they'd never seen anything like it. Uh, of course, they don't want to say it's Atlantis, and they say we have no idea what could explain this other than them being buildings. Uh, from a very, very old time. But that wasn't the, the, the last thing we found. Um, the, the last thing we found, we think, is the most important, and that is what looks like the remains of a temple structure that was roughly 30 miles to the south of Bimini. One Casey reading said, if you will do a geological survey down the Gulf Stream, which means you go south down the Gulf Stream um, from Bimini, you will find some remains. And this structure that we found we call Brown's Ruins, named after uh, Esley and Chris, Krista Brown, who initially told us about it. Uh, it is a, it's got pure white sand around it, and it is this massive pile of giant blocks of stone, beams, long beams of, of stone, uh, what are very clearly uh, fluted columns, uh, these huge flat, what, they look to me like flooring, roughly 12 feet by 8 feet, uh, pure, uh, very, very smooth. We've had them geologically tested. 
uh, by the top labs in the United States, the top universities, uh, to try and find out where this stuff came from. They are made of a type of schist, S-C-H-I-S-T, which is the same exact stone that, is, that was used to build the Oracle of Delphi in Greece. Uh, most people think it's all marble. Well, it's not. It's schist. Uh, schist really polishes up nice, and when you uh, – this stuff is green schist, and underwater it glows a purple when you get the coral off of it or when you get whatever the material is that's uh, calcified on it, uh, it kind of glows purple. Well, this thing is this, – it's in a big teardrop shape, almost like a way – this was a structure standing up, and it's like a giant wave hit it and just knocked it over. So it's in a big teardrop shape, and it is 500 feet long longer than what would have been an aircraft carrier some years ago, uh, and it is 160 feet wide. It's 7 wow. to 10 feet in height. So what we believe is there was a structure there. It's in a very high point. It's in a high point underwater. It's about 7 feet. The top of it is about 7 feet above the surface. Uh, on one side, on the other side is deep water. Uh, on the other side is deep water. And so it's at a high point, and the tidal flows just race back and forth across it several times a day. So it's actually a dangerous place. But it would have been a high point uh, when it would have been a high point up until roughly uh, 6,000 BC. That's when the sea the sea levels would have risen enough to just cover it up. But we believe it probably was a temple structure that was knocked over by a tsunami or just a huge wave, maybe a, maybe a hurricane. Mm -hmm. uh, it mm -hmm. is a, it's now officially a Bahamian archaeology site, uh, and we can't tell anybody precisely where it is. Uh, it's a registered site. Uh, we've been told we can't. We can go back and film, but we're not allowed to do any more archaeological work at that really? site. So that's is kind there, of the that's a summary of a lot of the stuff we did. Uh, of course, I've only hit high points. No, sure, sure. Is there any possibility the Bimini Road or the platform or anything else that you described uh, could be natural formations? The, well, there's a. It's all made of natural stone. That's one of the things that always gets me. They say, "Oh, this stone is natural." Well, yeah. What stone isn't natural? <laughs> uh, it's of course it is. Okay, so the Bimini Road is made out of what's called beach rock. Beach rock forms on, on the right on the shoreline uh, of saltwater beaches all over. Uh, if it's in the Mediterranean, uh, they have sandstone beach rock. In the Mediterranean, it is limestone beach rock. So beach rock forms by calcification of sand uh, and anything else that happens to be laying there on the surface. It's a very convenient building stone. Uh, in the Mediterranean, they used beach rock to build all the ancient harbors there. The Phoenicians did. Um, we know that that's what occurred. You can actually go see the harbors there, and there they recognize them. Now, this became very controversial back in the 70s, uh, the Bimini Road did. That's why we wanted to stay away from it. We wound up looking at every single thing the skeptics have said about the Bimini Road, and we found they virtually lied about a lot. In fact, one of the skeptics who was a geologist with the United States Geological Survey in the laboratories that he worked in Miami, he fabricated fake archaeological artifacts. Hmm. The U.S. Geological Service knew about it. University people knew about it. He took them over to the Bahamas, and he planted them under the stones at the Bimini Road. No. And he thinks it's funny. I'm not. I am. This is. Uh, it's on film. Him actually saying it. Some of the people that saw him. That's why it came up. They asked him whatever happened. He said, "Oh, he was hoping to see somebody claim that they'd found these these artifacts." And he said he was going to make fun of them. Then he said, "But nobody ever did." Now we actually looked at loads. All of their claims about it. They claim that these are just flat stones laying on the bottom. It was all part of one piece. Uh, it, that is not true based upon their own research. It is, that is simply an out-and-out out lie. What it is, what we believe it is, is a harbor, a harbor formation probably built and used around five to 7,000 years ago. 
Now that goes way, it's not Atlantean then. It goes to an unknown maritime culture because nobody believes that there was anybody actually doing that in the Bahamas till around 500 B.C. or so. Uh, but the Bimini Road has multiple layers of stone. There are what we call wedge stones that are under the big ones on the top to try and level them out. Uh, and it's pretty clear that's what it was, that it was some sort of a harbor. But that's why we just stay away from it, because people are so influenced by what the skeptics said over the years, and they don't read what the skeptics actually wrote, because what they actually wrote in their research reports, which, by the way, they will not supply to you. They won't give you a copy of their research report, and they're not online anywhere. I have them, and I will supply them to anybody that wants them. Uh, but they won't, and I had to go into uh, the library at Florida State University to actually find them because they're in very obscure journals that you just can't find except in libraries that have marine archaeology in them. Uh, but they don't, they won't supply them. But their research themselves shows that it is not a natural formation. It uses natural beach rock, but it's not a natural formation. It looks like a breakwater for a harbor. And even if it isn't, there's all this other stuff there. So that's kind of the story of it. It's I'm disgusted by that. Uh, I have spoken with that geologist uh, several times. He thinks it's all fun. He says he he didn't take any of it serious. He took it all for fun. Uh, it was just a big joke. Uh, he makes fun of all the people that believe in this. He said that Edgar Cay that Edgar Casey said that Bimini was Atlantis because a patient told Casey that. Uh, and I said, that that's absurd. I said, that's well documented. And he said, no, no, I have it in the brochure I got from the Casey organization. And I said, I'd love to see it. And he said, I don't have it anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just lots of things that he said are just totally bonkers, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good Lord. Unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> talking with Dr. Greg Little about uh, Atlantis and Edgar Casey, fascinating stuff. Uh, Greg, I, I could talk to you all night about this. We've only got a couple of minutes to go. This hour went uh, went so fast. Um, now, isn't there, didn't I read something, and I think you and I talked about this before, a strand of DNA that might be yes. attributed to Atlanteans? Yes, uh, haplogroup X, um, and that is, we don't have time to do that. That strand of DNA comes from mitochondrial DNA. Uh, even that we said initially in 1999 is when I first published that, that I thought haplogroup X, and it was called X. The first, the first mitochondrial haplogroups were labeled A, B, C, and D. They didn't, they didn't even expect that, they would be, that there would be that many of them, so they put letters on them. Uh, and they tested Native Americans. That's who they were getting this DNA from. Now, it's called mitochondrial DNA. This is not human DNA, but it's DNA that's in us. Very complicated. I can't deal do that in two minutes and explain it. <laughs> but then they unexpectedly found another one, and because it didn't match anything that they had ever found, they called it X, as in X the unknown. Subsequently, they found loads and loads of more, and today there's 40-some. There's, there's roughly 42 major uh, haplogroups of mitochondrial DNA, and there's a lot of subgroups. You, so you get like X1, X2, X1B, uh, X1B1, that kind of stuff, where they are. each one of those subgroup is a mutation. They're mutations. X, haplogroup X to this day remains the only one that has no known source. That is, all of the other haplogroups, all 40-some of them, we know where they came from in the world. We know where they, the very first Eve, the first person who had that haplogroup wow. came from. But haplogroup X remains the only one that's unknown. And that's bizarre that it was the fourth one found, fifth one found, they called it X, and it's still X as in the unknown. I okay. speculated that it comes from somewhere that no longer exists, and it makes sense that it's Atlantis because the only places where it's been found in ancient remains, because they can pull this DNA from ancient remains, are in the places where Edgar Cayce said Atlanteans fled back in 10,000 B.C. when Atlantis was destroyed. Because when the Atlanteans heard that, they were, that the their cataclysm was going to occur, many, many people migrated. Some of them went to North America and they... they they mixed in with the Native American groups, and Casey said they were the Iroquois. Some went to South America. 
Some went to the Yucatan, others went to Egypt uh, and in the Gobi Desert and a few other places like the Pyrenees Mountains. X has been found in all those places. So that's Atlantean DNA. Fascinating stuff, Dr. Greg Little tonight on uh, on the Ryan Lindsay Show. Uh, Greg, real quick, tell people how they can find out more about you and your and your work. Well, I'm on Facebook. Look up Gregory L. Little. Gregory, you have to put that L in there because there's a lot of Greg Littles. But Gregory L. Little, Facebook. I'm also on Twitter, or just Google me, Gregory L. Little, and my face will pop up. It's not a good picture. You've but been listening I can't fix to the that. Ryan Lindsay Show. Visit RyanLindsayShow.com for more man. information. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.